Do you remember Age of Empires 2? Because I certainly do. I played it a lot as a kid growing up, me and my brother. And we used to mess around with some of the fun Easter egg features. So there was this little feature where you could play these little audio clips from the from the game and it was responses by soldiers and there was one where it was called all hail king of the losers so once you got the shortcut down you could just hit that shortcut over and over again and just have it play all hail king of the losers to just mess with your friend but there was a campaign in there for france and it took place during the hundred years war and it featured joan of arc I remember her being a prime character, one of a special cavalry unit. And I was looking back over the the intro video for that mission. And in the final mission, after Joan has been captured by the English and burned at the stake, the imaginary French hero that you play is giving an account before the battle. And it goes like this, and I'm going to say it in a French accent. So here we go. July 14th, Bordeaux. No Jean of Arc, a rich world made empty and poor. The English put her on trial as a heretic. Jean's mind was as sharp as her sword, and she avoided all the cunning verbal traps of her prosecutors. In the end, Jean would not renounce her mission. The English found her guilty and burned her at the stake. But her death was not in vain. La Pousselle is a rallying cry as peasant and nobleman alike take arms. My army is an army of the people. And even without the king, we are poised to strike at the English stronghold of Castilion. A victory at Castilion will crush the English pretensions to France forever. Should I die in this battle, I die for the maid of Orléans. I die as a patriot of France. Hey everyone, welcome back to Smoking with the Saints podcast. I'm Michael Hannon, your host, and this is part two of St. Joan of Arc episode. So last we left off, we left Joan just being captured on May 23rd, 1430 at the town of Compiègne after a failed rearguard action where they threw down the gate at Compiègne and she was trapped outside. And she was captured by Lionel Vendôme. And so she finally surrendered on that day and was brought into captivity. And here on out, we cover the events as laid out in the book by Father Michael Saron, which is called For God and Country, the Heroic Life and Martyrdom of St. Joan of Arc. We cover her captivity, her persecution, and her eventual martyrdom at the, at the burning of the stake. And then afterwards, we'll cover her cause for canonization and her eventual canonization as a saint. So, picking back up where we left off in the book, uh, just given some grounds for where she's heading. So, she was captured by Lionel Vendôme, and then she was transferred over to Duke John of Luxembourg who was on the side of the English. He was one of the allies of the English. 
and she was treated with chivalry. She was treated fairly well in the in the in the possession of John of Luxembourg. And during this time, though, she was not she was not just gonna let herself sit in captivity, and she actually attempted two escape attempts. So in the book, the first one mentions that very soon after arriving at the castle, Joan made her first attempt to escape. After locking her guard in the room of her confinement, but the gatekeeper discovered her and brought her back to her quarters. So that must have been really embarrassing for that guard. <laughs> he just ends up ends up getting tricked by Joan and gets locked in, in her cell. So the second place where she tried to make her escape was a, a little bit more intense. So her place of confinement, as the book goes on to say, was a room in a castle tower about 20 meters above the ground. Thus, any attempt to jump out was extremely dangerous and possibly fatal. Her concern, though, for the besieged cities of Compiègne was so strong that she imprudently ignored the warning of her voices not to jump. She managed to hang on to the ledge with her feet hanging down before releasing her grip and falling to the ground. She lay stunned and unconscious for a long while. Then she awoke, although still badly bruised, and hid in the tower base for three days without food or water. All was for naught once a castle guard discovered her hideout and brought her back inside to a more secure area. So after this, they probably increased security on her so that she wouldn't try another escape attempt. And during this time, the Duke was was being pestered by the English to, to ransom her and turn her over to their possession. So the next thing that happened was Joan was sold by John of Luxembourg to the English for a sum which would amount to several hundred thousand dollars in modern money today. Now, at this time, the region of England... Uh, Duke of Bedford, he died. So he had been the main political guy on the English side because the King of England was still a young boy. He was not old enough to take the the, the kingship fully. So he had chosen Bishop Pierre Couchon, who was a conniving greedy worm of a man from my that's that's my that's my opinion and, and personal take after reading all of the shenanigans and horrible stuff that he made Joan go through and Koshan's aim was to somehow convict Joan of heresy so that she could be killed and no, no longer be a threat so they they were trying to find a way to to get her on trumped-up charges or have her say something or, or admit something that would give them grounds to execute her. So that was his whole intention. Once they had transferred her over to the English, they were setting up this fake trial to do that. And so in the book, Bedford wanted a church tribunal to condemn Joan for witchcraft, prostitution, or heresy, since he and his English soldiers attributed her previous battlefield successes to demonic powers. Uh, 
and a little bit on Cochon. So he was the Bishop of Beauvau, who had been displaced from his diocese once that territory came under French control. That aristocratic bishop was also a strong supporter of the Duke of Burgundy along with the English region. As a clever, quote-unquote, theologian and former rector at the University of Paris, he was the principal architect of the dual monarchy theory whereby Henry V's heir could become King of England and France. He also solicited endorsements from his colleagues at the university in order to be named presiding judge at the trial of the maid. He obtained this role illicitly, since he was neither the bishop of the place where Maid's alleged heresy occurred, nor the bishop of her home diocese, as canon law then specified. But because Bedford wanted the Maid tried in Rouen under his control, and where the archbishopric see was vacant, he and Couchon pressured the priest canons of that archdiocese to grant Couchon a commission of territory authorizing the Bishop of Beauvau to preside at the trial in their city. By conducting a quote-unquote beautiful trial according to all ecclesiastical and civil norms and Bedford's pleasure, the ambitious and avaricious Couchon saw an opportunity afterward to enhance his prestige and his benefices by gaining the Archdiocese of Rouen for himself. I remember at this time, if you were a bishop of a diocese, that entitled you to land, and from that land there were peasants that worked it, and there was a, a tax that was taken from that, and then it was received by whoever was in that ecclesiastical post. So there was money involved, and Kushan was after it. So, another section in the book. Several Dominican theologians from Rouen also expressed their concern or total opposition, one of whom was even imprisoned by the unscrupulous bishop. So right from the start, this guy has bad intentions, and people recognize it as just a blatant grab for power, and there is not any actual good motivation for this trial. So moving on, as the trial proceeded and Joan's inspired responses began to embarrass her chief judge, he ordered that her answers be loosely rendered rather than verbatim. He also tried to make her swear another oath to tell all about everything they asked. She refused, of course, saying she was already sworn to secrecy by her voices about certain matters not relevant to their inquiries. So what was the trial actually like for Joan? So getting into what they asked her about and how she responded and what, what was the specific issues they were trying to get her on, the book describes that. Questions also arose regarding church authority versus individual conscience, public revelation versus private, and the dogmatic versus the mystical. The causes among the expert theologians and clerics claim supreme authority as the church militant, the visible church on earth, as a sole arbiters of the public revelation of God in Christ. Hence, from their narrow perspective, Jones references the Christ with his angels and saints triumphant in heaven, according to her interior private revelations as a simple, illiterate female layperson, demonstrated her disobedience and disrespect for the Church of God vested in them as highly credentialed clergymen. In reality, the prayerful, humble maid had insight into the Church triumphant 
the members of the church in heaven. Her judges were blinded by their own pride and arrogance in attempting to trap her into separating herself from the church by rejecting their usurped authority. After an old archdeacon named John de Chatillon explained the nature of the term to her, Joan replied, I do believe in the church on earth, but as I have already declared as far as what I have done and said are concerned, I trust in God and refer myself to him. I believe that the church militant cannot err or fail, but I submit all my words and deeds to God, who caused me to do what I have done. Joan made no intellectual separation between the church militant, the church triumphant, and the church suffering, the souls in purgatory. Her beautiful mystical response, certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit, was, But why do you try to confuse me? Christ's church is all one and the same. Amen, Joan. During her trial, Joan had no advocate for her defense, only prosecutorial harassment and villainy from Burgundian churchmen. Cochon even sent another of his lackeys, the priest Nicolas Lozier, pretending to be from Joan's home region of Laurent, to win her trust, hear her confession, with Cochon listening from outside, and obtain knowledge of her confessed sins for use against her in court. In mid-April, Joan was given a piece of rotten fish sent to her by Couchon, which she unwittingly ate. She became extremely sick, thinking herself about to die. Couchon and Bedford, fearing her death might upset their shrewd legal plan for her demise, immediately sent for medical assistance. And also, just before we go on, there is going to be a description of one of the persecutions Joan faced, which might be uncomfortable or not suitable for certain young audiences. So just a warning that probably the next 20 or so minutes or after that, there might be some things like that. So just turn it off if that is something you're sensitive to or you are prone to temptation. So anyways, back to the book. After this poisoning, Joan continued to suffer weakness and ill health from the food poisoning as from the harsh, cruel circumstances of being chained to the wall in a cold cell, harassed by foul male guards who would not let her sleep and even tried to violate her virginity. To add insult to injury, Estevet, the maniacal priest prosecutor, repeatedly called Joan a slut and a whore, offering her many other insults as the doctors of medicines themselves later testified. And now moving on to a particularly horrific incident. Quote, Later that same night, one of those high-ranking English nobles returned to the dungeon, entered Joan's cell, and sexually assaulted and battered her in an attempted rape. Someone else also secretly brought men's clothes into her cell and laid them next to her mat. Only God knows what other demonic attacks she endured. So, during this time... After they had tried to get her through verbal traps, which was not working, they eventually forced her to sign a document renouncing her supposed errors and agree to wear female clothes instead of the men's clothes which she had been wearing. Now, as we just described, back in the English dungeon, she was sexually assaulted by those English guards. 
And so the clothes that were left there were probably left by Kushan, who secretly wanted to have her change into those to prevent further advances and further attempts of rape, which allowed him to accuse her of recidivism, of essentially going back upon her renunciation of the errors and would give him grounds to say that she was a heretic, that she was denying church teaching, all that stuff, and then have her executed, which is what happened. So there was a a calling of a session, and there were 42 assessors who had participated in the formal trial, and there were only three of them that favored handing her over to secular authorities for death, and the vast majority of those assessors were dissenting, but they were ignored, and so, quote, Buffour and Couchon, with their tiny minority of sycophants, did what they had decided long before that day. They condemned Joan and turned her over to the secular arm of their English overlords. Now, on May 29th, Bishop Couchon was giving a speech to the people of Rouen and was announcing the final decision in the case and what would happen to Joan. And there was a section where she addressed Joan, and the book goes on to say that although he referred often to himself as Pierre Bishop by divine mercy, he certainly had not shown Joan any mercy, divine or human. Moreover, he lied in the transcript, suggesting he had the authority and approval of the Pope in Rome, and that the maid had refused an appeal to the Holy See whereas Couchon had in fact rejected her appeal. Then Couchon addressed her in this manner. Therefore we declare that you are fallen again in your former errors, and under the sentence of excommunication which you originally incurred, we decree that you are a relapsed heretic, and by this sentence which we deliver in writing and pronounce from this tribunal, we denounce you as a rotten member, which so that you shall not infect the other members of Christ, must be cast out of the unity of the church, cut off from her body, and given over to the secular power. We cast you off, separate and abandon you, praying this same secular power on this side of death and the mutilation of your limbs to moderate its judgment toward you, and if true signs of repentance appear in you, to permit the sacrament of penance to be administered to you. Whew, I can't imagine what that would have been like for Joan to just have to go through this and especially here publicly mocked and falsely accused in this situation. It's disgusting. So on May 30th, 1431, Joan, before her execution, was able to receive the Eucharist. And it must have been a... A, a relief from the horrors that she had experienced. Now, on the day of her execution and martyrdom, the English were impatient to get the fire going and get it over with. And so Joan was not properly transferred over to the Rowan authorities. And now, in the place of execution, there was a cart that was pulled by the donkey that led her to it. And... In the book, quote, says, Driven into the marketplace near the church of Saint-Sauveur, Holy Savior, 
Heretic, relapsed, apostate, idolatrous. Written on the dunce cap on Joan's head in mockery. Identified the condemned and abandoned maid. She was dressed in the coarse garb of a female penitent with her hair shaved close to her scalp, accompanied by more than 800 men of war with axes and swords. The English were not going to take any chances. And also, the English and their supporters were very impatient to get the fire going, as we said earlier, and get rid of their nemesis. One of them said to the nearby cleric, What? Priest, will you make us dine here? The crowd of English soldiers and Rouen civilians shouted and jeered at the maid as she was mounted on an elevated platform to the stake directly over a huge pile of wood. She asked for a cross, so an English soldier fashioned two twigs from the wood pile into the shape of a small cross. Joan kissed it and placed this symbol near her heart against her breast in her robe. Then she suddenly asked that a crucifix be brought out so that she might gaze upon it during her ordeal. Father Isambert ran into the church with the sacristan and came out to her with the processional cross, which she kissed and held for a few seconds. After the executioner had bound her hands behind her back around the stake, Friar Isambert lifted the crucifix high into the air so its corpus of the crucified Christ directly faced Joan. So at this point, the fire has been started and it's starting to burn. And the book notes an account of the burning. The smoke started to choke her and the heat of the fire to sear her flesh. The Dominican friars Martin Ladvenu and Esenbert de la Pierre testified... We heard her from the midst of the fire, calling on her saints and her archangel. Then as her head fell forward, in a sign that she was fervent in the faith of God, she gave a great cry of Jesus. Now, after she had been burned and was dead, the book notes the aftermath. Her singed naked body no longer covered by the penitential robe which had been consumed in the fire, revealed a woman with head bowed in apparent defeat and disgrace. The executioner restarted the fire so as to burn the rest of Joan's body to ashes. But Thiraj was unable to burn her heart and her intestines. Quote, Despite the oil, the sulfur, and the charcoal he applied, he became greatly disturbed by the evident miracle and realized that he had executed a saint. Bedford ordered him then to take all the remains and ashes and dump them into the Seine River, which he did. The English regent wanted no French partisans to take anything as a possible relic. So what was the aftermath? Well, Duke Bedford, who was the regent of England, he later died of disease shortly after this event. And King Charles and Duke Philip reconciled. And many years after Joan's martyrdom, Charles was able to successfully retake France, and there was an investigation that was convened into the show trial in 1432. So a little bit about the reconciliation. The book goes on to say that after Bedford had died, another week or so, Charles and Philip signed the Treaty of Arras, effectively ending the civil war in France and returning Burgundy to its historical connection with France, and Philip 
to fealty under France's true king. And then for the investigation into the show trial, Isabel Romy, who was Joan's mother, also petitioning the church and state to redress the grievances against her daughter, said, But certain enemies had her arraigned in a religious trial, despite her disclaimers and appeals, both tacit and expressed, and without any help given to her defense, she was put through a perfidious, violent, iniquitous, and sinful trial. The judges condemned her falsely, damnably, and criminally, and put her to death in a cruel manner by fire. I demand that her name be restored. That same fiery spirit, which had characterized the beloved daughter, Jeanette, was still burning intensely in the heart of the old mother, Isabel Romay. And going on to talk about the further aftermath and the impact that Joan had on France. So there's a quote from the American Numismatic Society, which had a Joan of Arc exhibit in 1913 in New York City. And there's a quote that said, France might have been England at this day, instead of a republic, under the rule of King George and following the temperament and tendency of those days. The entire population speaking English, for by royal decree, France, as a distinct nation in tongue, customs, laws, and looks, could have been erased. That is, in brief, the effect of Joan of Arc's life on the world. Indeed, quite an effect. And I'm just thinking in a bit of a humorous way that if that had happened, we would not have had the excellent baguettes that we get today from France. So, indeed, very glad that Joan of Arc was there to stand up and defend France. Also, there are some other notable figures in history that remark upon Joan of Arc and her impact. And one of them is by the Winston Churchill, who said, Joan was a being so uplifted from the ordinary run of mankind that she finds no equal in a thousand years. The records of her trial present us with facts alive today through all the mists of time. Out of her own mouth can she be judged in every generation. She embodied the natural goodness and valor of the human race in unexampled perfection, unconquerable courage, infinite compassion, the virtue of the simple, the wisdom of the just, shone forth in her. She glories as she freed the soil from which she sprang. All soldiers should read her story and ponder on the words and deeds of the true warrior. So this idea of being a, a true patriot for one's country is something that Joan exemplified. And the author goes on to discuss this as he says, True patriots support their own countrymen while also respecting the rights of people from other cultures and nationalities. A nation forms from local and religious and regional communities sharing a common language, customs, commerce, system of government, and spiritual, moral, and religious ideals and practices. The United States can be called a nation of nationalities from the diversity of its people, e pluribus unum, out of many, one nation under God. And continuing on, 
wanted to note about what happened to her three ecclesiastical antagonists during the show trial, what happened to them later on, and then just the the eventual process of her canonization, how that went, what were the obstacles, who were her defenders. So going back to her antagonists, so the book mentions that the main bishop, the Burgundian bishop, Pierre Coujon, he died quite an ironic way. So it goes on to say that the deceitful Burgundian bishop, Pierre Coujon, died suddenly in a barber's chair while being shaved. The foul-mouthed, vicious prosecutor, John de Estevet, was found dead, his body rotting in a street gutter, and the lying deputy, Nicholas Mitty, died wretchedly of leprosy. Oh, how just. In 1456, from Rome, Pope Calixtus III revoked the Rouen sentence against Joan of Arc and nullified the original 1431 trial proceedings that had unjustly condemned her. The Pope vigorously declared, The actions of Joan are worthy of admiration rather than condemnation, and the former judgment, in form as well as in principles, deserves to be reprehended and detested. So, thank you, Pope Calixtus. And after a couple hundred years on, the actual first cause for canonization was put forward by the Bishop of Orléans, very fitting, who in 1869 initiated her case for sainthood. And after many delays... In 1892, the initial examination of evidence by the Vatican had been completed, and in 1894, she was declared venerable by Pope Leo XIII. And then from there, the canonization process continued, and just a note about what that's like, what are the standards that are looked into for seeing if a person is capable of being a saint. So, quote, the book says, Always the first and foremost standard to be met was verification of a candidate's virtues, especially of faith, hope, and charity. The advocate for a holy candidate was called the defender, known now as the postulator, who had to overcome all possible objections from the promoter of the faith, then commonly known as the devil's advocate. The promoter searched for any vice or serious fault in the candidate's life and death to accuse that soul and thwart the advancement of the cause. The second standard was a high intensity and wide extent of popular devotion for the cause of that soul. The third standard was the certification of miracles involving bodily healings from God through that holy person's intercession in heaven. In the canonical causes for martyrs of Christian faith, the church dispensed from the normal requirement for miracles. At the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th, the advocating defender of the candidate had to document four miracles in the canonization process. So this is what Jones cause for canonization had to undergo, and they had to provide this evidence. And over the course of this process, there were several promoters and there were several devil's advocates and I really think they should go back to using that name. It's just, it's just more fitting. <laughs> and then uh, eventually, after a long process of review and successful defense by the defenders, 
there was a unanimous vote of the assembly in April 1909, and Pope Pius X named her Blessed Joan of Arc. And Joan didn't have to wait too long before being canonized as a saint. And in 1920, the Roman pontiff Benedict XV, surrounded by thousands of devotees assembled in the Vatican Basilica of St. Peter, declared Joan of Arc to be Saint Joan of Arc, finally. And just a, uh, a last note from the book about another notable Catholic who was inspired by Joan of Arc. We have Therese Martin, or better known as Therese of Lisieux, who inspired throughout her short life by La Pucelle, Therese likened her own little way of humility in the love of God and her year-long suffering from tuberculosis to the saintly Joan of Arc's year-long imprisonment and her death as a kind of spiritual martyrdom. And it's also interesting to note that she, while she was at the convent, had joined in a theatrical play about Joan of Arc's life where she played Joan of Arc, I believe, so definitely left a, a huge impact on her. And there we go. That is all that I wanted to note on from this book. And there's so much more that is in there, so many more details, especially about the canonization process and the obstacles that were encountered by the defenders. And it often it seems weirdly that the, the devil's advocate in the Vatican is really gunning to not have Joan of Arc be a saint. It's just they they try to use all sorts of dirty tricks, which I guess makes sense from their role, but it just seems that, all right, come on, bro. You know, I mean, at a certain point, the evidence is just overwhelming that you should try and get on board, but I guess there's a process. So, but yeah, once again, this book is For God and Country, The Heroic Life and Martyrdom of St. Joan of Arc, by Father Michael Cerrone out of Sophia Press. So definitely get it, buy the book, support him. And yeah, so what a what a great book that expounded upon Joan of Arc's life. And I think just to wrap up a couple things about Joan of Arc today is another theme that I noticed or lesson that we can take away is Joan's focus and awareness of the next life being the most important. I think that in all her actions, especially in the times of peace, when she was practicing her faith, she was going to mass, she was receiving confession, she was spending as much time in prayer, and I think you see her devotion to our Lord and this focus on the next life being what matters most and that that ear in this world it's only for a short time and that everything is is material and it will all fade away or it all rust or it all dissolve and so what is truly lasting is that relationship with Christ and that spiritual daughtership that she clearly understood and felt. So uh, that's just something interesting I, I thought about. And of course, we can't end without a, a quote from Mark Twain, as he is, he is wont to provide 
many a quote for us, and this one is a a particularly uh, meaty one, and just reflecting about her life, and he goes on to say that when we reflect that her century was the brutalist, the wickedest, the rottenest in history since the darkest ages, we are lost in wonder at the miracle of such a product from such a soil. The contrast between her and her century is the contrast between day and night. She was truthful when lying was the common speech of men. She was honest when honesty was become a lost virtue. She was a keeper of promises when the keeping of a promise was expected of no one. She gave her great mind to great thoughts and great purposes when other great minds wasted themselves upon petty fancies and upon poor ambitions. She was modest and fine and delicate when to be loud and coarse might be said to be universal. She was full of pity when a merciless cruelty was the rule. She was steadfast when stability was unknown and honorable in an age which had forgotten what honor was. She was a rock of convictions in a time when men believed in nothing and scoffed at all things. She was unfailingly true to an age that was false to the core. She maintained her personal dignity unimpaired in an age of fawnings and servilities. She was of a dauntless courage when hope and courage had perished in the hearts of her nations. She was spotlessly pure in mind and body when society in the highest places was foul in both. She was all these things in an age when crime was the common business of lords and princes and when the highest personages in Christendom were able to astonish even that infamous error and make it stand aghast at the spectacle of their atrocious lives black with unimaginable treacheries butcheries and bestialities so yes i agree with mark twain she was a shining light in this time of war and disease and chaos and brutality and really makes you just grateful for our current time even though we have many problems today and very similar to the problems that they had in that time but the amount of of physical hardship and and stress was magnified so it's incredible that even in this period she was able to fight against that and be a be an example of the good and the true and the beautiful but some other resources, if you want to check out more of Joan of Arc, and I highly encourage you to, is the book by Hilaire Belloc. And there are a bunch of other books out there by different authors. And I think another neat portrayal of Joan of Arc is by Eugène Thirion, who was a, a painter in the 19th century. And he had painted a artwork called Joan of Arc. And it's a beautiful, I guess, neoclassical or 19th century-esque oil painting where it portrays Joan of Arc as a beautiful woman sitting on this rock. And there is St. Michael uh, hovering above her, whispering in her ear. And then there's a, a French soldier that's clad in armor 
blowing on a trumpet with the flag of France waving behind him. So kind of just encapsulates all the great things about Joan of Arc right there. And uh, also the, the cover for the book for God and Country has a great image of Joan of Arc on her horse, uh, resplendent in her armor and her horse's armor and being celebrated by the people of Orléans as they march through and her her glorious retinue and other knights sitting behind her with looks like they have twirling mustache. So awesome. Uh, well, anyways, so moving on to the fine tobacco for this week. Uh, so last time we were talking about pipe tobacco and Perique and Orlick Golden Flake was a suggestion. I wanted to talk about cigars and recommend some cigars for you. So I think there's two cigars that would be particularly relevant for Joan of Arc. So I think that Romeo and Julieta, House of Montagu Robusto, would be a good one. And uh, in this cigar, it has flavors of rosa coffee, earthiness, and oak. And there's a little hints of dark fruit and vanilla, plus a the the, the review I read said an eye-opening shot of spice, which I think would be appropriate for Joan of Arc. I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people that encountered her, it was like an eye-opening shot of spice in their life. <laughs> and uh, and then another one is Perdomo 20th Anniversary Maduro Epicure. And uh, I pick it, one, because it has Epicure at the end. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty French. And this one, it burns slow. It's a very full-body taste, velvety, with a lingering pepper. And uh, this is a Nicaraguan tobacco. And you can find these. I like to go to famoussmokeshop.com. That's usually a good place to pick up some deals on cigars. But, uh, yeah, once again, you know, that lingering pepper uh, I think also relates to Joan. And, I, you know, I, I'm i not sure if she would have smoked uh, if she had access to tobacco, but I would have liked to think that she would have and that she would have picked these particular kinds. But anyways, so that's just some recommendations you can check out for tobacco this week. And a little bit about what I've been enjoying this week is Black and Tan Pipe Tobacco by... The Country Squire, which is a great tobacco shop. They have an online store, and they also got a location in the south. And it's this this fairly mild, aromatic blend that's a, a cool smoke. It's not anything dramatic or spicy. It's just a, a pleasant smoke that you can have for your pipe. And... Uh, there's also a, a really interesting article I found when I was looking at recent saints that were canonized or in the process of canonization. And I found this article talking about a Argentinian soldier who was called Santiago Oliveira. And this is from the Catholic News Agencies. And I think it's, a, it's an inspiring read here. So he was a colonel in the Argentine army that was tortured and murdered in 1975 by Marxist rebels. So what had happened was he had been taken captive by these rebels. The ERP, or the People's Revolutionary Army, 
there's always some sort of people or revolution in their name. It's, it's kind of it's kind of a theme, you know. Anyway, so he was uh, originally a chemical engineer, and then he joined the military. So he was very knowledgeable in explosives and C4 devices, and so that's why they captured him, because they wanted him to make or teach them how to make explosives so that they could use that in bombing attacks, terrorist attacks in the country. And he refused. He stubbornly and obstinately refused. He did not give them. Even after severe torture, he was held captive for 372 days in a cell approximately six feet high, three feet long, and two feet wide. And, you know, I'm sure it was brutal, all sorts of nasty tortures that he endured, and eventually he was killed. And so he is uh, being put forth for canonization as a saint, and I pray that that may go successful. So just something to think about. Hope that inspired you today, and I uh, hope it leaves you with something to think about. So anyways, I think that'll do it for the show. So once again, folks, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Smoking with the Saints podcast. Uh, a part two, because Joan of Arc deserves that with her, just the amount of things that she did, the the feats that she accomplished, and the miracles that she performed definitely required a, a two-parter. So thanks for hanging in there with me. Anyways, uh, just the usual, interested in any of your listener feedback, you can leave a comment on smokingwiththesaints.com or you can email smokewithsaints at gmail.com. And if you can, just leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, let people know that you like the show. And, you know, if you're on social media, you might be able to find the show on there. If you can, just join, subscribe, hit whatever buttons out there, and then uh, move on with your day. So uh, there'll be some uh, interesting links in the show notes, so definitely check that out. And until next time, shalom, everyone. Warning. Tobacco may have been burnt in the making of this episode.